twelve, that were sent after her, and continued her course until she reached her consort, the Siren, which awaited her outside the harbor, joining company, they proceeded to Syracuse, where the fleet then lay. The exploit we have here described was one of the most notable in the annals of the American Navy. It was one that needed the utmost daring combined with the most exact attention to details, and in both these respects there was nothing wanting to ensure the success of the enterprise. The hour was well chosen, as that in which the foe would most likely be off their guard, and to this we must ascribe the slowness of their assault on the Americans and the uncertainty of their aim, the mode of approach to the frigate, the skill with which the catch was laid alongside without exciting suspicion and the rapidity and completeness with which the destruction of the prize was prepared for, were all worthy of high commendation. As for the boldness of the enterprise, one has but to consider what would have been the fate of the Americans had the attack failed, directly under the frigate's guns, and in a harbor filled with gunboats and armed cruisers and surrounded by forts and batteries, escape would have been impossible, and every man in the intrepid must have perished. The greatest courage, coolness, and self-possession and the most exact discipline, alone could have yielded success in the daring project, and these qualities seem to have been possessed in a high degree. The success of this exploit gave Lieutenant Decatur a reputation for gallantry which had its share in his subsequent elevation to the highest rank in the Navy. The country generally applauded the feat, and the Navy long considered it one of its most brilliant achievements, it being deemed a high honor among sailors and officers to have been one of the intrepid's crew. The writer of these pages may add that it is to him a matter of some interest that the first man to reach the deck of the Philadelphia on that memorable night was a namesake of his own, Midshipman Charles Morris. For the credit of the name he is also glad to say that Mr. Morris in time became a Commodore in the Navy, and attained a high reputation as an officer both in war and peace. The victim of a traitor, on the Ohio River, 14 miles below Marietta, lies a beautiful island, which became, in the early part of this century, the scene of a singular romance, at that time it was a wild and forest-clad domain, except for a few acres of clearing near its upper extremity, on which stood a large and handsome mansion, with spacious outbuildings and surrounding grounds which were laid out with the finest taste, the great elms and gigantic sycamore of the west gave grandeur to the surrounding woodland, and afforded shelter to grazing flocks and herds, huge water willows dipped their drooping branches into the waves of the Ohio as they ran swiftly by. In front of the mansion were several acres of well-kept lawn, in its rear were two acres of flower garden, planted with native and exotic shrubs, vine-covered arbors and grottoes rose here and there, on one side of the house was the kitchen garden, stocked with choice fruit trees, through the forest trees an opening had been cut, which afforded an attractive view of the river for several miles of its course, on the whole, it was a paradise in the wilderness, a remarkable scene for that outlying region for not far from the mansion still stood a large blockhouse, which had, not many years before, been used as a place of refuge in the desolating Indian wars. Here dwelt Harmon Blennerhassett and his lovely wife, he a man of scientific attainments, she a woman of fine education and charming manners. He was of Irish origin, wealthy, amply educated, with friends among the highest nobility, but he had imbibed Republican principles and failed to find himself comfortable in royalist society. He had therefore sought America, heard of the beautiful islands of the Ohio, and built himself a home on one of the most charming of them all. We have described the exterior of the mansion. Interiorly it was richly ornamented and splendidly furnished. The drawing room was of noble proportions and admirable adornment. 
The library was well filled with choice books. The proprietor was fond of chemistry, and had an excellent laboratory, he enjoyed astronomy, and possessed a powerful telescope, he had a passion for music, had composed many airs, and played well on several instruments. He was, in his way, a universal genius, courteous in manners, benevolent in disposition, yet of that genial and insuspicious nature which laid him open to the wiles of those shrewd enough to make use of his weak points. Mrs. Blennerhassett loved society, and was none too well pleased that her husband should bury himself and her in the wilderness, and waste his fine powers on undeveloped nature. Such guests of culture as could be obtained were hospitably welcomed at their island mansion. Few boats passed up and down the river without stopping at the island, and cultured and noble persons from England and France not infrequently found their way to the far-off home of the Blennerhassets. Yet, with all, the intervals between the visits of cultivated guests were long. Ohio was rapidly filling up with population, but culture was a rare exotic in that pioneer region, and the inmates of the Blennerhassett mansion must have greatly lacked visits from their own social equals. One day in the spring of 1805 a traveler landed on the island, as if merely lured thither by the beauty of the grounds as seen from the river. Mr. Blennerhassett was in his study, whither a servant came to tell him that a gentlemanly stranger had landed, and was observing the lawn. The servant was at once bidden to invite the stranger, in his master's name, to enter the house. The traveler courteously declined. He could not think of intruding, begged to be excused for landing on the grounds, and sent in his card. Mr. Blennerhassett read the card, and his eyes lighted up with interest, for what he saw was the name of a former vice president of the United States. He at once hastened to the lawn, and with polite insistence declared that Mr. Burr must enter and partake of the hospitality of his house. It was like inviting Satan into Eden, Aaron Burr, for it was he, readily complied. He had made the journey thither for that sole purpose. The story of Mr. Blennerhassett's wealth had reached the East and the astute schemer hoped to enlist his aid in certain questionable projects he then entertained, but no hint of an ulterior purpose was suffered to appear. Burr was noted for the fascination of his manners, and his host and hostess were charmed with him. He was unusually well-informed, eloquent in speech, familiar with all social arts, and could mask the deepest designs with the most artless affectation of simplicity. All the secrets of American political movements were familiar to him and he conversed fluently of the prospects of war with Spain, the ease with which the Mexicans might throw off their foreign yoke, and the possibilities of splendid pecuniary results from land speculations within the Spanish territory on the Red River, the seeds home, the arch-deceiver went his way, his first step had been taken, Blennerhassett was patriotically devoted to the United States, but the grand scheme which had been portrayed to him seemed to have nothing to do with questions of state. It was a land speculation open to private wealth. Burr kept his interest alive by letters. The Blennerhassett spent the next winter in New York and Philadelphia, and there met Aaron Burr again. Not unlikely they came with that purpose, for the hopes of new wealth, easily to be made, were alluring and exciting. During that winter it is probable that a sort of land speculation partnership was formed. Very rich lands lay on the Washita River, within Spanish territory, said Burr which could be bought for a small sum, then, by encouraging immigration thither, they might be sold at enormous profit, this was the Burr scheme as Blennerhassett heard it, the Duke did not dream of the treasonable projects resting within the mind of his dangerous associate, these were, to provoke revolt of the people of Mexico and the northern Spanish provinces, annex the western United States region, 
and establish a great empire, in which Burr should be the leading potentate. Mr. Blenner has it, once enlisted in the land speculation project, supplied the funds to buy the lands on the Washita, and engaged in operations on a large scale for sending settlers to the purchased domain. Colonel Burr came to Marietta and took an active part in these operations. Fifteen large flat boats were built to convey the immigrants, their furniture, and such arms as they might need for repelling Indians. Five hundred men were fixed as the number for the first colony, and this number Burr succeeded in enlisting. Each was to have one hundred acres of land. This was not in itself any great inducement where land was so plentiful as in Ohio, but Burr did not hesitate to hint at future possibilities. The lands to be colonized had been peacefully purchased, but the Mexicans were eager to throw off the Spanish yoke, or between the United States and Spain might break out at any minute, Mexico would be invaded by an army, set free, and the new pioneers would have splendid opportunities in the formation of a new and great republic of the West and South. Burr went further than this. He had articles inserted in a Marietta newspaper, signed by an assumed name in which was advocated the secession of the states west of the Alleghenies. These articles were strongly replied to by a writer who signed himself, Regulus, and with whose views the community at large sympathized. His articles were copied by eastern papers. They spoke of the armed expedition which Colonel Burrow was preparing, and declared that its purpose was the invasion of Mexico. Jefferson, then in the presidential chair, knew Burr too well to ignore these warnings. He sent a secret agent to Marietta to discover what was going on, and at the same time asked the governor of Ohio to seize the boats and suppress the expedition. Mr. Blenner has it assured the secret agent, Mr. Graham, that no thought was entertained of invading Mexico. The project, he said, was an eminently peaceful one, but the public was of a different opinion. Rumor, once started, grew with its usual rapidity. Burr was organizing an army to seize New Orleans, rob the banks capture the artillery, and set up an empire or republic of his own in the valley of the lower Mississippi. Blenner Hassett was his accomplice, and as deep in the scheme as himself. The Ohio legislature, roused to energetic action by the rumors which were everywhere afloat, passed an act that all armed expeditions should be suppressed, and empowered the governor to call out the militia, seize Burr's boats, and hold the crews for trial. Public attention had been earnestly and hostilely directed to the questionable project, and Burr's hopes were at an end. The militia were mustered at Marietta. A six-pounder was planted on the river bank. Orders were given to stop and examine all descending boats, and sentries were placed to watch the stream by day and night. While these events were proceeding, Mr. Blenner Hassett had gone to the Muskingum to superintend the departure of the boats that were to start from that stream. While there the boats were seized by order of the governor, the suspicions of the people and government were for the first time made clear to him, greatly disturbed, and disposed to abandon the whole project, costly as it had been to him. He hastened back to his island home, there he found a flotilla of four boats, with a crew of about thirty men, which had passed Marietta before the mustering of the militia. They were commanded by a Mr. Tyler. Mr. Blenner has its judgment was in favor of abandoning the scheme. Mrs. Blenner Hassett, who was very ambitious, argued strongly on the other side. She was eager to see her husband assume a position fitting to his great talents. Mr. Tyler joined her in her arguments. Blenner Hassett gave way. It was a fatal compliance, one destined to destroy his happiness and peace for the remainder of his life, and to expose his wife to the most frightful scenes of outrage and barbarity. The frontier contained hosts of lawless men, men to whom loyalty meant license 
Three days after the conversation described, word was brought to the island that a party of the Wood County Militia, made up of the lowest and most brutal men in the community, would land on the island that very night, seize the boats, arrest all the men they found, and probably burn the house. The danger was imminent. Blennerhassett and all the men with him took to the boats to escape arrest and possibly murder from these exasperated frontiersmen. Mrs. Blennerhassett and her children were left in the mansion, with the expectation that their presence would restrain the brutality of the militia, and preserve the house and its valuable contents from destruction. It proved a fallacious hope. Colonel Phelps, the commander of the militia, pursued Blennerhassett. In his absence his men behaved like savages. They took possession of the house became brutally drunk from the liquors they found in the cellar, rioted through its elegantly furnished rooms, burned its fences for bonfires, and for seven days made life a pandemonium of horrors for the helpless women and frightened children who had been left in their midst. The experience of those seven days was frightful. There was no escape. Mrs. Blennerhassett was compelled to witness the ruthless destruction of all she held most dear, and to listen to the brutal ribaldry and insults of the rioting savages. Not until the end of the time named did relief come. Then Mr. Putnam, a friend from the neighboring town of Belpre ventured on the island. He provided a boat in which the unhappy lady was enabled to save a few articles of furniture and some choice books. In this boat, with her two sons, six and eight years old, and with two young men from Belpre she started down the river to join her husband. Two or three Negro servants accompanied her. It was a journey of great hardships. The weather was cold the river filled with floating ice, the boat devoid of any comforts, a rude cabin, open in the front, afforded the only shelter from wind and rain, half frozen in her flight, the poor woman made her way down the stream, and at length joined her husband at the mouth of the Cumberland River, which he had reached with his companions, having distanced pursuit, their flight was continued down the Mississippi as far as Natchez, no sooner had Mrs. Blennerhassett left the island than the slight restraint which her presence had exercised upon the militia disappeared. The mansion was ransacked. Whatever they did not care to carry away was destroyed. Books, pictures, rich furniture were used to feed bonfires. Doors were torn from their hinges. Windows dashed in costly mirrors broken with hammers. Destruction swept the island, all its improvements being ruthlessly destroyed. For months the mansion stood an eyesore of desolation, until some hand, moved by the last impulse of savagery, set it on fire, and it was burned to the ground, what followed may be briefly told, so great was the indignation against Burr that he was forced to abandon his project, his adherents were left in destitution, some of them were a thousand miles and more from their homes, and were forced to make their way back as they best could, Burr and Blennerhassett were both arrested for treason, the latter escaped. There was no criminating evidence against him. As for Bird, he had been far too shrewd to leave himself open to the hand of the law. His trial resulted in an acquittal, though no doubt was felt of his guilt. No evidence could be found to establish it. He was perforce set free. If he had done nothing more, he had, by his detestable arts, broken up one of the happiest homes in America, and ruined his guileless victim. Blennerhassett bought a cotton plantation at Natchez, his wife who had the energy he lacked, managed it. They dwelt there for ten years, favorites with the neighboring planters. Then came war with England, and the plantation ceased to afford them a living. The ruined man returned to his native land, utterly worn out and discouraged, and died there in poverty in 1831. Mrs. Blennerhassett became a charge on the charity of her friends, 
After several years she returned to the United States, where she sought to obtain remuneration from Congress for her destroyed property. She would probably have succeeded but for her sudden death. She was buried at the expense of a society of Irish ladies in the city of New York, and thus ended the career of two of the victims of Aaron Bird. They had listened to the siren voice of the tempter, and ruin and despair were their rewards. How the electric telegraph was invented. The year 1832 is only 60 years ago in time. Yet since then there has been a striking development of conveniences, rapidity of travel, and arrangements for the diffusion of intelligence. People then still traveled in great part by aid of horses, the railroad having just begun its marvelous career. News, which now fly over continents and under oceans at lightning speed, then jog down at stagecoach rates of progress, creeping where they now fly. On the ocean, steam was beginning to battle with wind and wave, but the ocean racer was yet a far-off dream, and mariners still put their trust in sails much more than in the newborn contrivances which were preparing to revolutionize travel. But the wand of the enchanter had been waved, steam had come, and with it the new era of progress had dawned, and another great agent in the development of civilization was about to come, electricity, which during all previous time had laughed at bonds was soon to become man's slave, and to be made his purveyor of news. It is the story of this chaining of the lightning, and forcing it to become the swift conveyor of man's sayings and doings, that we have here to tell, in the far remote period named if we measure time by deeds, not by years a packet ship, the Sully, was making its deliberate way across the Atlantic from Haver to New York. Its passenger list was not large, the ocean had not yet become a busy highway of the continents but among them were some persons in whom we are interested. One of these was a Boston doctor, Charles T. Jackson by name. A second was a New York artist, named Samuel F. B. Morse. The last-named gentleman had been a student at Yale, where he became greatly interested in chemistry and some other sciences. He had studied the art of painting under Benjamin West in London, had practiced it in New York, had long been president of the National Academy of the Arts of Design, and was now on his way home after a second period of residence in Europe as a student of art. An interesting conversation took place one day in the cabin of the Sully. Dr. Jackson spoke of Empgrave accent Ray's experiments with the electromagnet, of how Franklin had sent electricity through several miles of wire, finding no loss of time between the touch at one end and the spark at the other, and how, in a recent experiment at Paris, a great length of wire had been carried in circles around the walls of a large apartment an electromagnet connected with one end, and an electric current manifested at the other, having passed through the wire so quickly as to seem instantaneous. Mr. Morse's taste for science had not died out during his years of devotion to art. He listened with the most earnest attention to the doctor's narrative, and while he did so a large and promising idea came into being in his brain. Why, he exclaimed, with much order of manner, if that is so and the presence of electricity can be made visible in any desired part of the circuit. I see no reason why intelligence should not be transmitted instantaneously by electricity. How convenient it would be if we could send news in that manner, chimed in one of the passengers. Why can't we? exclaimed Morse. Why not? Indeed, the idea probably died in the minds of most of the persons present within five minutes, but Samuel Morse was not one of the men who let ideas die. This one haunted him day and night. He thought of it and dreamed of it. In those days of deliberate travel time hung heavily on the hands of transatlantic passengers. Despite the partial diversions of eating and sleeping, the ocean grew monotonous, the vessel monotonous, 
the passengers monotonous, everything monotonous except that idea, and that grew and spread till its fibers filled every nook and cranny of the inventive brain that had taken it into bed and board. Morse had abundance of the native Yankee faculty of invention. To do, had been plain enough from the start. How to do, was the question to be solved. But before the Sully steamed into New York Harbor the solution had been reached, in the mind of the inventor, and in graphic words and drawings on paper, were laid down the leading features of that telegraphic method which is used today in the great majority of the telegraph lines of the world, an alphabet of dots and marks, a revolving ribbon of paper to receive this alphabet, a method of enclosing the wires in tubes which were to be buried underground, were the leading features of the device as first thought of. The last conception was quickly followed by that of supporting the wires in the air, but Morse clung to his original fancy for burying them, a fancy which, it may here be said, is coming again into vogue in these latter days. So far as cities are concerned, it is not meant to be implied that the idea of sending news by electricity was original with Morse. Others had had it before him, more than half a century before. Dr. Franklin and some friends had stretched a wire across the Schuylkill River and killed a turkey on the other side by electricity. As they ate this turkey, it is quite possible that they imbibed with it the idea of making this marvelous agent do other work than killing fowl for dinner. And from that time on it is likely that many had speculated on the possibility of sending intelligence by wire. Some experiments had been made, and with a certain degree of success. But time still wait for the hour and the man and the hour and the man met in that fertile October day in the cabin of the Sully. If it can go ten miles without stopping, I can make it go round the world, said Morse to his fellow passengers, his imagination expanding in the ardor of his new idea. Well, Captain, he said, with a laugh, on leaving the ship, should you hear of the telegraph one of these days as the wonder of the world, remember that the discovery was made on board the good ship Sully, the inventor, indeed was possessed with his new conceptions, mad with an idea, as we may say, and glad to set foot once more on shore, that he might put his plans in practice, this proved no easy task, he was none too well provided with funds, and the need of making a living was the first necessity that presented itself to him, he experimented as much as he was able, but three years passed before his efforts yielded a satisfactory result, then, with a circuit of 1700 feet of wire, and a wooden clock, adapted by himself to suit his purpose, he managed to send a message from end to end of this wire, it was not very legible, he could make some sense of it, his friends could not, but all were much interested in the experiment, many persons witnessed these results, as shown in a large room of the New York University, in 1837, they seemed wonderful, much was said about them, but nobody seemed to believe that the apparatus was more than a curious and unprofitable toy and capitalists buttoned their pockets when the question of backing up this wild inventor's fancy with money was broached. But by this time Mr. Morse was a complete captive to his idea. Body and soul he was its slave. The question of daily fare became secondary, that of driving his idea over and through all obstacles became primary. His business as an artist was neglected. He fell into a want, into almost abject poverty. For twenty-four hours he went without food but not for a moment did he lose faith in his invention, or remit his efforts to find a capitalist with sufficient confidence in him to risk his money in it. Failing with the private rich, he tried to obtain public support, went to Washington in 1838, exhibited his apparatus to interested congressmen, and petitioned for enough money from the public purse to build a line from Baltimore to Washington, 40 miles only, 
it is traditionally slow work in getting a bill through Congress. Weary with waiting, Morse went to Europe, to try his new seed in that old soil. It failed to germinate abroad as it had at home. Men with money acknowledged that the idea was a scientific success, but could not believe that it might be made a business success. What would people care for instantaneous news? They said, some might, it is true, but the great mass would be content to await for their news in the good old way. To allay miles of wire in the earth is to bury a large treasure in money. We cannot see our way clear to getting it back again out of the pockets of the public. Your wires work, Mr. Morse, but, from a business point of view, there's more cost than profit in the idea. It may be that these exact words were not spoken, but the answer of Europe was near enough to this to send the inventor home disappointed. He began again his weary waiting on the slowly revolving wheels of the congressional machinery. March 3rd, 1843, came. It was the last day of the session. With the stroke of midnight on that day the existing Congress would die, and a new one be born, with which the weary work of the education of congressmen would have to be gone over again. The inventor had been given half a loaf. His bill had been passed on February 23rd, in the House. All day of March 3rd he hung about the Senate chamber petitioning, where possible, for the other half of his loaf, faintly hoping that in the last will and testament of the expiring Congress some small legacy might be left for him. Evening came, the clock hands circled rapidly round, pressure of bills and confusion of legislation grew greater minute by minute, the floodgates of the deluge are lifted upon Congress in its last hours and business pours onward in such an overwhelming fashion that small private petitioners can scarcely hope that the doors of the Ark of Safety will be opened to their petty claims. Morse hung about the chamber until the midnight hour was almost ready to strike. Every moment confusion seemed to grow, worse confounded. The work of a month of easy-going legislation was being compressed into an hour of haste and excitement. The inventor at last left the capital, a saddened and disappointed man, and made his way home the last shreds of hope seeming to drop from him as he went. He was almost ready to give up the fight, and devote himself for the future solely to brush and pencil. He slept but poorly that night, and rose the next morning still depressed and gloomy. He appeared at the breakfast table with a face from which the very color of ambition seemed to have been washed out. As he entered the room he was met by a young lady, Miss Annie G. Ellsworth, daughter of the Commissioner of Patents. The smile on her beaming face was in striking contrast to the gloom on his downcast countenance. I have come to congratulate you, Mr. Morse, she said, sharily. For what, my dear friend, for the passage of your bill? What? He gazed at her amazement. Could she be attempting a foolish and cruel jest? The passage of my bill, he faltered. Yes, do you not know of it? Remember, then you came home too early last night and I am happy in being the first to bring you the good news. Congress has granted your claim. It was true, he had been remembered in the will of the expiring Congress, in the last hour of the Senate, amid the roar of the deluge of public business. His small demand had floated into sight, and $30,000 had been voted him for the construction of an experimental telegraph line. You have given me new life, Miss Ellsworth, he said. As a reward for your good tidings I promise you that when my telegraph line is completed, you shall have the honor of choosing the first message to be sent over it. The inventor was highly elated, and not without reason. Since the morning of the conversation on the ship Sully, eleven and a half years had passed. They had been years of such struggle against poverty and discouragement as only a man who was the slave of an idea has the hardihood to endure. 
The annals of invention contain many such instances, more, perhaps, than can be found in any other channel of human effort. To complete our story we have to bring another inventor upon the stage. This was Ezra Cornell, memorable today as the founder of Cornell University, a man at that time unknown, but filled with inventive ideas, and ready to undertake any task that might offer itself. From digging a well to boring a mountain tunnel, one day Mr. Cornell, who was at that time occupying the humble position of traveling agent for a patent plow, called at the office of an agricultural newspaper in Portland, Maine. He found the editor on his knees, a piece of chalk in his hand, and parts of a plow by his side, making drawings on the floor, and trying to explain something to a plow maker beside him. The editor looked up at his visitor and an expression of relief replaced the perplexity on his face. Cornell, he cried, you're the very man I want to see. I want a scraper made, and I can't make Robinson here see into my idea. You can understand it, and make it for me, too. What is your scraper to do? Asked Cornell. Mr. Smith, the editor, rose from his knees and explained. A line of telegraph was to be built from Baltimore to Washington. Congress had granted the money. He had taken the contract from Professor Morse to allay the tube in which the wire was to be placed. He had made a bad bargain. He feared. The job was going to cost more than he had calculated. On. He was trying to invent something that would dig the ditch. And fill in the dirt again after the pipe was laid. Cornell listened to him. Questioned him. Found out the size of the pipe and the depth of the ditch. Then sat down and passed some minutes in hard thinking. Finally he said. You are on the wrong tack. You don't want either a ditch or a scraper. He took a pencil and in a few minutes outlined a machine, which he said would cut a trench two feet deep, lay the pipe at its bottom, and cover the earth in behind it. The motive power need be only a team of oxen or mules. These creatures had but to trudge slowly onward. The machine would do its work faithfully behind them. Come, come, this is impossible, cried Editor Smith. I'll wager my head it can be done.